0: Absurdly
1: comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes.
0: Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50
1: We've reached the penultimate episode of season one of The Leftovers entitled The Garveys at Their Best. My name is Justin Hamilton, and I'm going to give you such a beautiful speech you might almost believe it right here on Big Squid. Before we get into this episode, I just wanted to take the time to thank everyone who wrote to me about the Ryan Hughes interview. I'm glad you got so much out of it. Uh, Some of you even appeared to get more out of it than I did, and I got heaps. So thank you for writing to me. Uh, I'm also loving your interpretations of the novel. Uh, I know the people who have written to me haven't finished it yet. Well, one person seemed to have finished it, and they seemed to have missed the very obvious thing at the end that I quite loved. If you're listening, maybe go back and check that. You'll know what it is. You might have just been a little bit overwhelmed. It's a big ending. Anyway, <laughs> I will respond to all of those emails as soon as I have some extra time. We're just kind of keeping things rolling here with the podcast, and I finished one job, and another one has just started. So, you you know when you're in those in-between moments where you're trying to find the rhythm of your life. Anyway, too much explanation. I just wanted you to know that I'm deeply appreciative of you writing to me, and I will get to those emails as soon as I can. If you don't know what I'm talking about, and if maybe you missed that podcast, that was the one that was released earlier this week, so you can just jump back one episode after this one, and you can check out the interview with Ryan Hughes. Let's get cracking. It's time to get into episode nine of The Leftovers, The Garveys at Their Best.
0: Three years ago, we looked at ourselves... And none of us wondered why we were still here we knew of course we knew you know i don't belong here are you a good guy no she wanted to deliver a message you need to tell me what she said
1: what the fuck did you people do it's early morning and kevin is running it's similar to how we've seen him run before way back in the pilot but immediately this world feels strange to us There are no blue ribbons trailing in the breeze. When Kevin runs past a house, we recognise it, even though it's devoid of the mural painted on the side. Kevin stops near a blue post box and reaches underneath to free a packet of cigarettes he has hidden there. Who's he hiding them from? He has a smoke, and he sees a deer in the forest looking back at him. The sun glows around its antlers and mesmerises Kevin for a moment. When he returns home, he goes straight to his car where he uses a mouthwash and a hand sanitizer to mask what he's been up to. He enters his house and it is a big, expensive, modern place. It is a rich person's home. In the background, a woman talks on the phone, but we don't recognise her voice. There's a party being planned, but Kevin's attention is taken up by the crack in the wall. How long has that been there? The woman continues talking. When she comes into focus, we realise it is Laurie, and the date is October 13. In 24 hours, 2% of the world's population will disappear without a trace, and it will be known as the day of the sudden departure. Everything is about to change, and nobody knows. Nora Durst wakes up next to her husband and her children playfully wake her. She gets her family ready for work and prepares for her job interview. Her husband and children cheer. The clock is already ticking away the day. Tick tock. Tick tock. Laurie sits in her office when she receives a call from her doctor. Laurie keeps cancelling her latest appointment and her doctor needs to remind her that she needs to see her soon. You're getting to the point of no return, she reminds Laurie. The next appointment will have to be kept. Laurie sighs because she knows the doctor is correct and makes a new appointment for tomorrow. She then goes out to let her next client know that she's ready. Patty stands up and follows Laurie inside. Kevin drives Jill to school. She's so young, stamped with braces across a smile, and she giggles at a phone that has an animated cat shooting rainbows out of its butt. After Kevin drops Jill off, he watches the video on his phone. He doesn't laugh. He doesn't get it. He doesn't get anything lately. Suddenly, there's screaming at the nearby school, followed by kids and teachers running from the classroom. There's a monster, one of the children screams. Kevin races in to find the classroom smashed up, but a young teacher tells him it was just a deer, scared, lost and trapped. The young teacher, a young woman, is having an affair with Nora Durst's husband, but only the two of them know. On the ground, a metronome clicks back and forth, marking out time. Back at her office, Patty confesses to Laurie that something bad is about to happen. Laurie points out that Patty often says something bad is going to happen, but nothing ever does. But this time, Patty can feel it. She knows it is going to be the big one. Laurie is convinced this is Patty dealing with being kicked out of her home by her abusive husband. Laurie attempts to lighten the mood, but Patty finds some steel. She can see in Laurie that she feels it too. Nora goes for her job interview with Lucy Warburton, who is about to begin her campaign to be mayor. This is a title Lucy will hold, but that is in her future. Lucy wants to know why Nora wants this job. She thinks for a moment and says that she wants to feel normal again. Nora has obviously been a mum for a while. It is time to get back to work. She tells Lucy that her family will not get in the way of her commitments to Lucy and says, for the next four weeks, as far as you're concerned... I don't have a family. Kevin Garvey Sr., still in his position as police chief, talks about the problem with the deer. Kevin Jr. loses his focus as he realises his mug has begun to leak. He tries to clean the mess as the mug, with the words My Hero emblazoned on the side, continues to leak through invisible cracks. Meanwhile, his father tells the officers that if they come into contact with the deer, they're to shoot it before it hurts anyone. Kevin Jr. speaks up and says he doesn't believe the deer needs to be killed. It can just be tranquilized and taken somewhere safe. His father and the other cops mock and dismiss this idea. Kevin is called by another policeman to tell him that Tommy has been arrested. Kevin finds him handcuffed and hurt. Tommy paid an uninvited visit to his biological father and when Kevin realises that Tommy's been hurt, he drives over to confront the father. Kevin tells Tommy he has to forget about his biological father. He has to pretend he doesn't exist. At the house, Kevin fails to control his temper and is physically abusive and intimidating, knocking Tommy's father to the ground. Inside, a little boy sees this act of violence, this act of aggression, and for a moment, Kevin catches himself. But it's too late. The young boy has seen what has happened. Laurie waits for Kevin to arrive at a house where she is about to buy a puppy. The woman selling the puppy is Gladys, who will one day join the guilty remnant and eventually be stoned to death as a martyr for their cause. Her life is ticking away and she has no idea that in three years' time she will go from selling puppies to a violent end. Kevin doesn't make it because he's picking up Tommy, but Laurie doesn't know this. She can sense the cracks in their relationship and the ticking of their time together. Back at their home, Kevin throws a surprise party for his father. Kevin Garvey Sr. pretends he didn't know it was going to happen and leans into the supposed surprise. Kevin Garvey Sr. is masculine and tells stories that are humorous but laced with anger and testosterone. Matt Jamison gives a speech with his wife, looking on lovingly. Kevin gives a speech to his dad where he celebrates his father and the idea of family, but he also looks like he is about to burst into tears, surrounded by people who love him, completely disconnected from them, so close to his world, but also out of arm's reach. Later, Kevin Sr. says to his son, "'Beautiful speech. I almost believed it.'" Kevin Jr. wonders if there's something wrong with him. "'Why can't this life be enough?' His father tells him, you have no greater purpose because it is enough. In the future, his father will tell him that he has a purpose he can't escape. But for now, Kevin Sr. dismisses his son's angst for the second time that day. Cut the shit, he says before leaving Kevin standing alone. That night, Kevin and Laurie talk and he tries to sleep, but he wakes early the next morning. Already, his sleeping patterns are slowly sliding out of whack. He goes for a run and finds his packet of cigarettes he hides at the blue post box. He's having a smoke when a car pulls up. A woman says to Kevin, ''Are you ready?'' Kevin doesn't know what she means. ''Sorry, I thought you were someone else.'' The car drives off before Kevin can take in who was in the car. There's a sudden rumbling followed by the manhole cover shooting into the sky, flames shooting out of the ground. Like hell is below. Burning. Burning. He runs home and tells Laurie what he just experienced, but in his excitement, he's forgotten to use his mouthwash or clean his hands. Laurie notices he's been smoking. She can't understand why Kevin just can't be honest. Kevin doesn't realise also that Tommy has confessed to his mum that he visited his biological father the day before, and that's where Kevin was when he was supposed to be buying the puppy. Tommy says he'll forget his father, but Laurie tells him not to because life doesn't work that way. But Kevin doesn't know this, and he fights with Laurie. The cracks in their relationship deepening and now in the open. She just wants honesty, and he spits back that he doesn't want a dog, and yeah, he smoked. She wants to know why he said he wanted a dog, and he replies that it was because it was what she wanted. In the middle of their argument, Kevin gets a call that the deer has been sighted and trapped in someone's house. Kevin experiences joy for a moment. He's going to go over there, tranquilize the deer, and get it to safety. Laurie looks at him bitterly. She knows he feels as trapped as that deer. At the house, the deer has made its way upstairs. Kevin tries to get it out, but the deer panics and races outside where it is hit by a car. The driver jumps out in shock and she looks at Kevin saying she didn't see the deer until it was too late. With the deer in pain, Kevin gets his gun and puts it out of its misery. He looks at the deer's antlers and pulls out a pop balloon, a balloon that was catching the light and giving that deer a religious glow. It's a girl, the balloon has written on one side. Laurie drives to a doctor's appointment and while at the lights, a car pulls up alongside her. A mother talks on her phone. She's obviously stressed, her baby crying in the back seat. They make eye contact and the mother shrugs at Laurie. What are you going to do? It is just one of those days. We know how bad this Mother's Day is. We've seen it in the first scene of the pilot. She will lose her baby to the departure very soon. At the doctor's, Laurie bumps into Matt and his wife. He's had good news and decides they should get drunk to celebrate. Mary Jamison offers to drive so Matt can celebrate. They are moments away from their accident. Tick tock. Tick tock. Kevin waits with the driver and she pulls out a packet of cigarettes. I know, I'm going to hell, she says. Kevin shares a cigarette with her and drives her to her motel. Are you a good guy, she asks Kevin. He replies, no. Do you want to come in, she asks. Meanwhile, Nora is trying to prepare for her day, waiting for a call about her job. Her children are being naughty and her husband is distracted. When he came home late the previous night, he didn't even think to ask Nora about the interview. Now he's playing on his phone, ignoring the noise around him. Finally, Nora's phone rings, but before she can answer it, her daughter knocks juice all over the phone. Nora snaps at her family as she rushes over to the paper towers to clean up the mess. Jill and Tommy are at the school fair and having a really fun time together. Tommy knows there's something up with their family and Jill shrugs. Maybe they're splitting up. But Jill is young and inexperienced, and besides, she's having fun with her brother in town. This is the science fair. Let's have a good time. They hold hands with some of her fellow students and help form an electrical current for a school experiment. Laurie's at the doctor's having an ultrasound. She's pregnant with Kevin's baby. She hasn't told him because their relationship is in flux. He doesn't want a dog. How will he react to a new addition to the family? She looks at the screen and watches the baby in her stomach, the gentle beating of the heart. Suddenly there's a scream out in the clinic and the doctor runs outside to see what has happened. At the school, the electrical current fades after a student disappears. Jewel looks at her hand and wonders where the student has gone. Kevin suddenly realises the woman he was sleeping with has vanished into thin air and he is now alone in the motel room. Nora turns to her family, who are no longer there, the juice still dripping from the table onto the floor. And Laurie looks at the ultrasound and wonders where the baby has gone that was just growing inside in her womb. Sometimes a work of art can speak to you on levels you don't really understand at the time. It isn't until later that you look back on a moment and can fully comprehend what was going through your head while you watched, listened, absorbed a work of fiction. I was still living in Melbourne when I saw this episode, and the ennui that plagues Kevin spoke directly to me on a subconscious level. I didn't know it at the time, but my last couple of years in Melbourne and first couple of years in Sydney were dark times. There was a listlessness that ate away at the edges of my reality." I had begun to retreat from the world and built a wall of assumptions to protect me. I was perfectly healthy, surrounded by friends, ingrained in an industry I had always wanted to be a part of while living in a city I had dreamed about. And it wasn't enough. There had to be more, but I didn't know what I was supposed to strive for. "'A restless heart is a dangerous beast "'and can lead to anger and poor decision-making. "'I noticed that the parts of life that were once fun "'left me belligerent and depressed. "'I'd always been fun when I drank with my buddies, "'but now I was snapping at people, "'cutting people out of my life for the simplest of reasons. "'I didn't enjoy stand-up anymore. "'I hated performing.' I hated being surrounded by comedians. I had little interest in talking to anyone and slowly sank into the quagmire of my life, a life that was perfectly fine and respectable. But I'd lost sight of why I wanted to be in this industry or even creative in general, why I wanted to live in this world. I kind of had forgotten what inspired me in the first place to take this specific path. I watched Kevin in this episode distracted by the glowing deer in the forest or focused on the crack that appeared in the wall. And when you come to these moments in your life, you have to do all you can to not burn it to the ground. Because to do so is not only an overreaction, but will also end up hurting innocent people. When I watched Kevin in this episode, I got him. I didn't necessarily agree with him. I didn't necessarily see myself reflected in him. I definitely didn't approve of him, but I got him in ways that i didn't understand when I first watched this episode and wouldn't totally understand until I had left Melbourne and relocated to Sydney. This is an important episode in a big swing to drop it right after last week 's finale with Kevin holding a dying patty in his arms. Most shows would leap right into the next scene, but the leftovers decide to take a breath and show us life before the day of the departure so we can Fully understand how our favourite Characters ended up in this place For starters, it is Truly shocking to hear Laurie speak Amy Brenneman has been So amazing throughout the series And in previous work as well I had almost forgotten what she sounded like Laurie is smart, well spoken In control, glamorous Yet when she goes to work and speaks To Paddy, even she can't hide The deep fissures in her life from the person Who is now her client and in the future Will be her leader Pain recognises pain and Paddy can see it in Laurie Maybe this is the problem with Kevin and Laurie They can see each other's pain but they don't have the courage to speak openly about it Or maybe they don't see it Kevin would rather hide his smoking than admit he's still having one here and there The elaborate effort he goes to just to hide a cigarette in the morning When it was also supposedly his decision to stop Is childish and secretive Kevin looks like a guy with plenty of chips on his shoulder. He has a domineering father that everyone loves, a hyper-masculine guy that has little room for sentimentality. Even the poem that his father read to him as a child, Stephen Crane's A Man Said to the Universe, is practical and full of cosmic irony, something that is present all the way through The Leftovers. A man said to the universe, Sir, I exist. However, replied the universe, the fact has not created in me a sense of obligation. Imagine reading a poem to a boy full of that cosmic irony, where the universe crushes the hopes and dreams of the man by acknowledging no obligation to the man's assertion of his own existence. This is what makes Kevin Sr. the man he is today, and in turn makes Kevin Jr. the man he is as well. Sr. versus Jr., the sins of the father. He tells him to grow up, but provides no solace or way forward. Later, Kevin fails to save the deer and in the process gives up on saving himself. Even Laurie can see that the deer has become a metaphor for Kevin, much to his disgust. Does she realise the baby she fails to acknowledge is also a metaphor? If so, it is one that disappears before she has a chance to understand what the baby was about to represent. This might be in some ways the most tragic loss of the series, the one that never fully arrived and therefore is an idea that is never fulfilled. Kevin's world is slowly falling apart and is represented by the cracks in the walls of his expensive home that his wife can afford. Not necessarily him on his policeman's wage. Or what about the coffee mug that slowly leaks all over his work table? But maybe he's not unlike Paddy or the people who drive up to him on the morning of the departure. Maybe he also knows there is something brewing on the horizon. Something is about to happen. We know it affects the animals. The deer are acting strangely, and who knows what happens to all those puppies that Gladys is breeding. The world, as most people know, is about to end for the Garveys. Their lives are already peering into the darkness. Tommy is getting drunk and harassing a father that doesn't want anything to do with him. Kevin is already beginning to fail to sleep properly and is resenting his marriage and the life he feels trapped in. Laurie is keeping her pregnancy a secret. Yet there are bonds too. Tommy and Jill are close. Kevin is genuinely protective of Tommy. Jill loves her mother. But this is a family who are too damaged to find a way to stay together when everything changes. Nora's life is also on the precipice. She needs to feel normal again, wants to go back to work. Who doesn't know a mother who's been at home with the kids wanting to flex their muscles and have something for themselves, something that defines them alongside their family? She also has a brother who continues to have cancer scares that must be playing on her mind. Her family pay her attention, but it is shallow, surface-level affection. It isn't her children's fault. They're too young to understand what it feels like for a woman to want to go back to work. And how can her husband properly support it when his attention is taken up by the kid's teacher? You can understand the guilt that invades her every cell when the last moment she has with her family is one of utmost anger, frustration and isolation. No wonder she can't at first find the courage to replace the empty paper towel rack. To do so would be to move on from the moment she feels most guilty for experiencing and expressing. And what about her brother Matt? On the day he learns some positive news, a decision he makes with his wife leads to an accident that will leave her catatonic. We see him at the party. He's a man of the people, an important man in town. His faith has helped him find community and respect. But his faith will cripple him when he can't understand how in a world where god looks over everything he allowed this to happen to matt a good man a pious man and to prove he is a good man he must prove that people who departed weren't good he must be a good man because if he isn't what is he kevin acknowledges to the woman who kills the deer that he isn't a good man yet how could he be with the upbringing he had I don't like Kevin Sr. He's the type of man I avoided as a kid and having as a friend, as a, as a grown-up. There's an air of violence about him, aggression, machismo. You can see it play out in his son, who maybe, with a different upbringing, might have been softer, more caring, more at peace with the universe. He tells Tommy to forget his biological father, pretend like it never happened, leave that part of your story in the past. Yet Laurie tells Tommy, as a trained professional, it doesn't work that way then once the sudden departure occurs they both carry out the philosophies kevin attempts to carry on as if nothing has happened even though he has constant reminders at home and at his work where his father continues to cast a long shadow even in his absence laurie leaves the family and joins the guilty remnant a group of people dedicated to reminding the rest of the world of the departure every single day if only they could have found middle ground together they could have had more chance of moving through this as a family unit But there was no chance this could happen, because this is a family that has emotionally lost each other before the world physically lost those they loved. And more often than not, when you're detached from the people you love and the world you live in, you often don't realise it in the moment. It is only when you look back, whether it is years after the sudden departure, or it's in the confines of your home in Sydney, with clear eyes can you come to terms with how truly lost you were. He's hoping the people of Mapleton will look back and embrace any opportunity to find their way back to each other. OK, we're at the Squid Bits part of the show. Uh, for people watching the series for the first time, we now have confirmation about the Paddy Laurie dynamic and just what was going on with the doggy bag in Gladys. <laughs> It is a show that seems to answer a lot of mysteries that you never realise that you were really keen to find out the answer to. Uh, the couple whose house is trashed by the deer are the same couple who are uh, interviewed by Nora back in episode two, and we meet their poor son who vanished on that fateful day. The video that Jill is watching is Nyan Cat. Nyan Cat? I missed this back in 2011, but watched all three minutes, 36 of it on YouTube and may have had a slight nervous breakdown while doing so, but... I can see why Jill also found it really funny. The song Kevin keeps listening to is The Girl from King Marie by Jodie Reynolds. Kevin running is almost identical to his first appearance. We see the younger woman who must have departed on the 14th because it's her face we see plastered on the wall of the house in the pilot. Kevin hiding cigarettes under the post box is similar to Tommy hiding Holy Wayne's money and the dream of Dean trapping the dog in one. Paddy already revealed Uh, that Laurie told her Kevin used to smoke. Kevin Sr.'s disdain for Judge Hayder was previously referenced in his note to Matt where he hid the money. Kevin Sr. tells his son that he has no greater purpose than his current life, yet years later he will try to convince Kevin Jr. of a greater purpose, and this is why Kevin says to his father, so now I have a purpose? Nora meets Kevin's father in this episode while Kevin briefly sees Nora's daughter and the teacher her husband is having the affair with. The revelation that the woman Kevin slept with, who departed, explains his dream in the pilot. The it's-a-girl balloon echoes the final line of Solace for Tired Feet with Annie and Tommy. I wonder if Laurie's baby was going to be a little girl too. Ugh. Awful. That is indeed the poor young mother with the baby Sam from the pilot. I've already mentioned that, but just a little uh, reminder. We also now understand why Nora doesn't have a mobile phone in present day and why Kevin would call her home number. Between her husband being constantly on his phone and probably texting with his lover and then her phone being destroyed by her daughter Erin spilling the orange juice, we can probably take a guess that Nora doesn't particularly want one around her because of all the bad feelings they bring like the empty paper towel rack. Uh, Kevin is only a smoker in the show, not the book. Also in the book, Laurie was a stay-at-home mum and their wealth came from inheritance on Kevin's side of the family. Tom is at university when the departure hits in the book. Paddy being Laurie's patient and having premonitions is an invention of the show. Kevin is the mayor in the book. There's a whole subplot there worth checking out. Uh, Laurie and Jill have a complicated and slightly oppressive relationship in the book, with Jill wishing for a little distance between them. Uh, Nora and Matt aren't siblings in the book. Kevin and Laurie don't have marital problems in the book and even plan on being early retirees. They only drift apart after the departed when Laurie becomes consumed by the losses around her. Laurie being pregnant Is an invention of the show Doug is consumed With his Blackberry In the book As opposed to his phone Around Nora Nora's experience With her family departing Is quite similar To the book actually There's a whole chapter That uh, she writes a letter To Kevin That's really Quite interesting to read At the By the way, the whole book's fantastic. It's really worthwhile checking out. Uh, Kevin cheating on Laurie is an invention of the show, but the mid-coitus departure is inspired by another character's experience that Tommy knows about. That brings us to the end of the podcast. We only have one more left for season one of The Leftovers. That's gone quick. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed doing this week to week with me as much as I have enjoyed your company and I really like the sense of community it brings. Uh, You know, everyone uh, who writes to me about it and your thoughts and, you know, your interpretations. uh, I love it. This is why we're doing it week to week. Next week, Ben Elwood and I are going to give you what you demanded, our thoughts on Zack Snyder's Justice League. We've held off. And I'm glad we've held off because we've had some time to think. I know I've kind of changed a little bit in how I've felt about it and now we're ready to go. Let other people get their thoughts out immediately. I'd rather think it through a little bit more and we have both rewatched the Joss Whedon version so we will be comparing that. Yes. That was um A long day. (laughs) Uh, To finish off, I thought I'd leave you with a quote from early 20th century German expressionist Emil Nold. Uh, There was a book celebrating his work on the coffee table at the Garvey's home, in case you're wondering where the inspiration came from to quote this German expressionist. Emil said, Art is exalted above religion and race. Not a single solitary soul these days believes in the religions of the Assyrians, the Egyptians and the Greeks. Only their art, whenever it was beautiful, stands proud and exalted, rising above all time. Until then.